Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. A witness to violence is a victim of violence, healing the shame that binds you. Oh, bitch, bitch, bitch. Grandpa Simpson. I like both of these quotes for different reasons. I think it's interesting that Grandpa Simpson reacts so flippantly, and it's specifically funny because what he's reacting to is Marge and Homer having their kids taken away because he was neglectful in the few hours they left him in charge of Bart and Lisa. I think it illustrates that sometimes people have wildly unreasonable reactions to our thoughts and feelings about situations they were involved in. That brings me to our topic today, addiction and intimacy. Yana has personal experience of this, and I think it's really useful to talk about these things. And I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes I worry I'm just bitching at you and complaining, and I'm sure those are just my own insecurities. When I talk about intimate moments or abuse or bullying or self-loathing, I'm essentially looking for a sense of connection that I'm not able to find in other areas of my life or with most people in my life. I think having someone like Yana to talk to is really helpful because community can be alienating for trauma survivors precisely because either most can't relate to what we're saying or they feel too much shame to share their story. Shame can become toxic and destructive, especially if you stay silent. And while this episode isn't exactly about shame, it is about intimacy and addiction, and I feel like there's certainly a relationship there. That's just in my limited experience, though. I would say that abuse results in a damaged relationship with oneself, and that a damaged relationship with oneself is related to addiction. Whether or not you identify as someone who has experienced abuse, trauma, or addiction, I think these topics can help identify issues with intimacy that maybe you struggle with in a really small way. Jealousy specifically ties into issues with the self, one's relationship with oneself, one's sense of worth, one's ability to ask for what one wants. I think it's necessary to talk about the experiences that shaped us, and I hope you find it interesting. Sharing such deep and intense stories is both intimate and draining. But if you feel up for it, I'd invite you to share yours to all of the others in the Intimates community, if that's something you're interested in doing. Otherwise, I invite you to listen to me sharing mine and Yana sharing hers. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. Awesome. Okay, so we can start whenever you'd like. Perfect, yeah, let's go. Okay, so I'll intro another session of Intimate Interactions with Yana Skorsengard. Let's see if I can do your 
your history <laughs> in less time this yes. time because I think we were 34 <laughs> minutes in when oh, I yeah. had introed you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Yana is all about evidence-based policy, just as I am. She's doing her criminology master's at Kwantlen University and is looking at the university. Bachelors. Sorry, bachelor's <laughs> at Kwantlen. I don't believe they have a master's program. They do not, unfortunately. And is looking at doing her master's at the University of Ottawa. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. You're published. You're an executive board member for Kwantlen Prison Justice Club. Yes. You were on the Carceral Cultures Conference panel at SFU. And you volunteer for PACE, an organization by sex workers for sex workers. Yes. Awesome. Great. So let's talk about intimacy. I'm super interested to talk about addiction and how that intersects with intimacy and forming meaningful human connections. Mm. Cool. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. Um, I guess I can speak from my own personal experience. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your personal experience with addiction has been? Totally. How that sort of was informed or understood through the lens of your family and then maybe talk about how that's impacted your experience of intimacy and connection in relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up, um, my parents split up when I was very, very young. My dad had a very serious drinking problem, um, and still does. Um, and my mom decided to go into recovery, um, while she was pregnant with me. And I believe she struggled with that a little bit afterward, um, and then went back. Um, but I always grew up around, um, mainly with my mom, people who were in recovery and who had had experience with addiction, um, and with that kind of trauma. Um, I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, so hearing people's very personal stories about addiction definitely informed me, I think, and helped shape me, um, even at like six or seven, you know, hearing these really harrowing stories. And you were going with your mom to Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes, um, because we couldn't afford daycare. Oh, I see, I see. So So when you talk about the trauma um, of addiction, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just curious because you you mentioned like how traumatic addiction can be. Yeah, I'd um, love to hear more on that in a sense of I'm interested to hear more on that. Yeah, um, a lot of people that I remember listening to um, talked about like, you know, how it destroyed their relationships with other people and with themselves and how, you know, ultimately they found themselves very, very alone, very isolated um, in their addiction. And, you know, for a lot of them because of their addiction Mm -hmm. Um, and having to work through all of that trauma while getting sober is is a lot yeah it's it's a lot for anybody Mm -hmm. um and yeah so i I grew up in those rooms and then i think in my early 20s i started experimenting with drugs and alcohol um and kind of fell into um kind of the same stuff that my my dad was doing um Mm. i was using a lot of drugs mostly to deal with the trauma of my relationship with my dad um, he mm-hmm. wasn't abusive to me, but he definitely, there was, there was, vi- I grew up around violence. Um, like he was abusive with your mother? He was abusive with my stepmother. Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay. And he would punch holes in walls and oh, screaming, yeah, th- things like that. You know, it's just, it's really tough. Um, and was this, did you have, did they have shared custody with you? Uh, for a while. I see. Until my mom found out what was going on. And then she right. took me out of that situation immediately. Okay. But there was still a very, you know, there was still exposure to it, yeah. for sure. 
That um, sounds really intense and definitely like something that would inform your perspective of yeah. life as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so I just started using drugs to cope with that and my own, um, uh, I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of drug use to deal with that. Right. And kind of manage the symptoms, um, which I highly don't recommend. Um, <sighs> yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been my kind of history with it, but it really, I didn't, in terms of relationships with people, I don't, I didn't really make healthy choices. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't choose people who were good for me, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, people who... What do you think informed that? Like choosing people who may not, were they just more familiar with what you understood? I think that's what it was. You know, there was just a sense of community. Shared experience, like yeah. they got it in a way that "quote unquote" normal people didn't yeah, totally. get it. Yeah, even though really the normal is just to be exactly the way you are. Yeah, I felt very misunderstood, and mm-hmm. um, the drug use kept me feeling misunderstood, and so I flocked to people who also felt like that. Right. So I've heard from addicts before that <coughs> there is a shared sense of community. Yes. That the second you stop doing drugs, disappears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell out of a lot of contact with a lot of those people yeah and you're also uh you're also told to stay away from those people mm-hmm. when you get clean mm-hmm. um and i didn't get clean in any conventional method um i did it by myself my addiction was very private wow um my parents did not know the extent of it a lot of my close friends didn't know the extent of it um i mean we were never super close but i had no idea yeah i hid it extraordinarily well yeah. yeah, you become, I became a, a very good liar. Yeah, I've um, heard that as well from other addicts. Yeah. yeah, a lot of hiding, like hiding liquor bottles, hiding drugs. Right. You just become really sneaky and, you know, you're like, nobody knows but me. And it's this really sick relationship with yourself that you right. have. It's very toxic. Tell me more about the relationship with yourself. Oh. Would you describe it as abusive? Yes, Absolutely. Do you think that's modeled based on other abusive relationships or experiences? For me, I think that came from the relationship with my father. Wow. I definitely never felt appreciated or loved by him. Um, This is my biological father. My stepdad is an amazing human being. Um, Yeah, just so, so good. He's been more of a dad to me than my biological dad. Mm -hmm. Um, But my relationship with my biological father definitely informed my relationship with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a lot of beating myself up. Yeah. A lot of, um, you know, maybe if I had been better, you know, maybe he wouldn't have drank so much. Right. Is this somehow my fault? And That's something kids do really easily. Yeah, totally. Because it's just, you know, how are you, how do you do it any other way? Yeah. You know. Yeah, they say that for divorce as well. That's a really common yeah. thing for young kids that... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so mine, it was just a very, very bad relationship with myself. Yeah. Very bad self-esteem. Um, I ended up developing an eating disorder. All these things just piled on um, just because at my core, I felt so abandoned mm. and having to deal with those issues. Yeah, and of course it always feels like it's your fault. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't have um I didn't start going to therapy until I was about 
or taking therapy really seriously until I was about 21 or 22. Mm -hmm. And so I just had a lifetime of those issues combined with being really bullied in school. Yeah. Elementary school and high school. I resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. I think if you're different in any way, you just kind of attract Mm -hmm. all like bullies pick you is what I should say. Oh yeah. I felt like a magnet. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I got bullied at just about every school I went to. Yeah. It was like um, when I went to Ladner Elementary between kindergarten oh, and grade two, I left that school because some kid I didn't know on the playground pulled a knife on me and held it up to my throat and threatened me. What? And that's what my parents said. <laughs> that's what they said. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, and it turned out that this person had a younger brother that was the grade behind me that had like interacted with me on the playground and had mentioned to his older brother that I talked too much. And yeah, I talked a lot. And yeah, I was a little bit, but this wasn't even a classmate. This wasn't even someone I interacted with on a regular basis. This was someone I had like tangentially interacted with on the playground who I wasn't even in the same grade as. Oh my God. And his brother that was like three or four years older than me. I think he was in grade six and I was in grade two. In fact, I know that was the case. Yeah. Just had a knife from scouts and like threatened me with the knife pointed directly at my throat, like threatened me at very close range. Oh my God. Yeah. And so the teacher didn't, or sorry, the teacher, the, the vice principal then did not take any action against him except taking his knife away. Of course they don't. And it was like, you know, even getting them to write an apology would be something, but like, it would be nice if they re if, if it was understood, they knew what they did wrong. Yeah. But she was also very, anti-punishment and I'm fine with teaching consequences and not punishing folks needlessly especially when you're talking about kids that probably don't come from the best homes yeah but like you gotta do something yeah ironically I switched schools but then that vice principal got a job as the principal at this other school so at this new school racism was a big problem yeah like people calling me shit smear like was that in Ladner? of course it was yeah of course it was of course it was What's um, up, Ladner? But hey, Ladner folks. Yeah. We don't hate all of you. Yeah, just... <laughs> just some. Um, yeah. <laughs> not, I could, not I really. could name you. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think I hate anyone from Ladner. I think it's just like... It, it almost felt like rot in the yeah. town somehow. It's, it's, got a, it's got a bad vibe. Yeah, it feels like it consumed people from yeah. our high school in a way that felt not wholesome. Yeah, and like you said, I think that if you were different yeah. in any way... Um, oh, yeah you were immediately a target for pretty much everybody there. Yeah, names of bullies are coming to head now. Oh, like, same. I'm getting a big I'm, flood. I'm trying to not, like, drop them all, but I definitely have, like, four or five in my head where oh, yeah. I'm like, I hope <laughs> you are... And then I'm, like, censoring myself, being like, I don't actually hope no, they're homeless. No, no, I don't no. actually hope that nope. they're experiencing suffering in prison. Like, I, I don't actually... I hope they have learned and have become better people. Yes. That they have done the work. Well, that is what I hope. Maybe mail me a chocolate apology cake. <laughs> I would like that. A chocolate apology cake. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, although I can't really eat tons of chocolate. It's mm. a bit of a tragedy. Um, but since I got IBS, which oh, I'm God. starting to realize was almost certainly impacted by compulsive eating. Oh. Which I've just been doing for like 20 years plus. Mm. Like I've been doing it since I was really young. Just like managing anxiety by compulsively eating. But because I was a teenage boy and then a man in his 20s. Right. I didn't put on tons of weight. Mm -hmm. And because people couldn't see physically that there was a really serious problem, I'm only now starting to realize like, oh shit, I have a really serious problem. 
And I've never realized I had a really serious problem because it wasn't really, really serious. Mm. It like wasn't enough to get me hospitalized. It wasn't enough to visibly affect me for a lot of my friends. Yeah. I just eat all of the time and specifically when I'm stressed. That was something I did after I got clean was I started to compulsively eat. Tell me more. I'm Um, super interested to hear about this because I'm probably going to relate. It was, it was, yeah, if I felt a, a sort of an overstimulation immediately, I was like, well, I can't use drugs. So right. I might as well just eat something because I'll feel better. So and I, if I, you were feeling shitty, you would eat. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, yeah, I still hadn't really dealt with my eating disorder and it was, yeah, it was just a I'm bad. so sorry to hear that. Uh. I don't think people, and, and, I sh- and I should be really cautious to say that I've had enormous privilege of my experience of eating and how I've had an unhealthy relationship with it. Mm-hmm. And I acknowledge that it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. But also, um, Yeah. I can't imagine what that was like layering that on top of an eating disorder that hadn't been treated. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was a way for me to deal with those emotions without having to talk about them. Yeah. Oh man. It just activates that parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I used to be anxious and now I'm just full. Yeah. And now I can just go to sleep. Uh, that, yeah. That sounds functional. <laughs> Yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I tend to be a hyposomniac rather than a hypersomniac. Mm. So when I get depressed, I'll stay up and game or watch movies or hate myself. But I'll just have that experience of being in the middle of the night when no one has demands on me. Yes. Oh, when yeah. I love that shit. It's it's such an unhealthy healthy. Yeah. It's just so nice to like not have demands on yourself even and just have that peace of like no one can get me right now. Yeah. It's like being in a safe fortress. I don't have to answer an email. I still do this shit. Yeah. Like, I don't have to answer an email. It's yeah. just me looking at weird stuff on my computer at four <laughs> in the morning and nobody <laughs> can talk to me. Yeah. Nobody can have an opinion on what I'm doing. This is great. It's me, the computer, and the night. That's all it is. Oh, that's lovely. And my four rats in the background, but they don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're like, if they judge me, I stop giving them treats. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't ever stop no, giving them treats. Never. So I love cute. them. So cute. They're so chubby. Yeah. Yeah. You can meet my rat later. Yay. Horatio is adorable. Oh, he sounds so cute. Yeah. So interestingly, we were told by the SPCA when I, <laughs> diversion time, we were told by the SPCA when I, when I rescued them, that they're both boys. Mm. They're not both boys. Oh. So Horatio was more of a Horatia. Mm. But I was like, whatever, genderqueer yeah. rat. She yeah. can have Horatio's a name. Why Why we got to be fussy? That's fine. So Horatio is still Horatio. My mom's dog's name is Holly. And she thought that Holly was a girl, but Holly is a boy. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I Holly's like just rocking that name. As as any fabulous He's dog doing should. It. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing it. He is. He's just uh. running around screaming. <laughs> he barks a lot. I see. Yeah. Running around screaming. That it's makes a sense. a very hyperactive little mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so eating disorders, that's a heavy topic. Yeah. How much do you want to speak about them? Um, just I can, yeah. Okay. I mean, I've, I've, I've been recovered for about 10 years now. Oh, so fantastic. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm good with you disclosing yeah. or talking about whatever you feel comfortable doing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And being mindful that I'm also totally cool deleting <laughs> stuff or burning things. Yeah. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All recordings in garbage. If that's something you decide later. Yeah. 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 Although once they're published on the internet, they're probably published forever, even <laughs> though I can take my copies down. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell yeah. me more about recovery, if you would. Um, or if you'd prefer, you can talk about what, what, what you were unrecovered from before you layered yeah. compulsive eating on top of that. 
Um, so I was kind of an unrecovered, for a while I just did not eat. Right. Or I would only eat like spinach and this terrible like instant black bean soup that you could get at Safeway. Mm-hmm. So I probably only ate about 500 calories. Oh, geez. Yeah. It was really bad. Um, and this was like, how old was I? I think I was about 21. And this was right around the time where um, my mom had been hospitalized for something. Um, and so when that happened, it just kind of got worse, a lot worse yeah. because I'd already, I'd always, I'd been kind of chubby as a teenager mm-hmm. and got really, really made fun of for that. And in, you know, my early twenties, I was like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stop eating. Like that's my solution to it. Right. I'm going to take control of the situation. Yeah. By giving up this Food. one thing that yeah. has had so much power over me. Right. This was a way to show that you had power over food. Yeah. This is me saying like, fuck you to food. Like, I don't need you. Right. And when really. Your body still does. Yes. Yeah. Please, please eat. It's so good for you. Yeah. Um, it will keep <coughs> you alive. Yeah. And it tastes good. In in a way that not eating will not keep you yeah, alive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just decided that this was what I was going to do. And I lost a lot of weight very, very quickly. Um, as, as one does when yeah. consuming significantly less than a healthy number of calories. And running literally all the time. That does sound like quite a severe eating disorder. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember like I came home, my mom said, God, you got so skinny so fast. Right. But everyone framed it in a positive way oh. because nobody, again, this, it was like my drug use. It was right. so secret oh, okay. that I yeah. was the only person who knew about it. Yeah. And so I would just take the compliment and it just reinforces of course, the behavior. Yeah. So everyone's telling me what I'm doing is right. Exactly. It's getting me the results I want. I have control. Exactly. How could this possibly go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't start to actually recover from it until I was in theater school. Wow. Because it, it, I had to deal with, I, you, I had to deal with my stuff. Yeah. I remember when you first went in mm-hmm. to theater, I remember seeing that you had changed directions mm-hmm. in your life pretty radically. And I remember just being so interested in like, yeah. what's going on in Yana's life? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm super interested to like, to like know more, yeah. but also what would I have been doing then? Oh, I would have been pre-med. Gross. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but uh, that would have been actually just a little after no i so i was in i was in pre-med like in the sense of i was doing an undergrad Mm -hmm. bsc um and applying to medical school which like it sounds way fancier if you're like i was in pre-med but what it really means is i had aspiration um and and i was just dealing with a lot right like i didn't have the emotional coping skills taught to me right um and i didn't know to go looking for them yeah and when my partner tried to kill herself it was pretty intense for me wow i would have been 18 when that happened. Wow. It was actually in this apartment that we're in now. Wow. Um, yeah. And I had to essentially like dress her for the paramedics and like, yeah, it was pretty intense. God. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it is, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And obviously that wasn't about me. And obviously there's no shame in that. Like it's totally fine that, that she did that. It was unfortunate. I was so ill equipped to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and like it just trashed me like for two years i was pretty suicidally depressed and yeah. like there were days when i just like wouldn't leave my house because i was afraid of myself if i were to get too near cars like yeah. it was it was bad yeah 
Yeah. yeah. But wow. it was like a solid two years where, yeah, I was fucked. Like I'm, I'm surprised. What is it? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be an angsty teenager for a second and quote Flyleaf, <laughs> saying, "Don't be shocked that people die. Be surprised you're still alive." Yeah. That's definitely how I felt. Like, yeah. I could. I just every every like at first it was like every day mm-hmm. was absolute torture. It was agony getting up. It was agony being alive, and oh. I just wanted to die. Yeah. And the only thought that kept me from killing myself was believing I deserved to suffer like that. Mm. That was the only thought that kept me alive. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I resonate with that for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. It's fucking intense. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's. It's, it's a level of self-loathing that very few people can oh, empathize with. God, yeah. I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. But I did eventually get through that. I went to counseling pretty yeah. intensively and worked through a lot of that until I wasn't suicidal and I was just chronically in a really intense depressive state mm-hmm. where I just felt hopeless and didn't really know what I could possibly do with my life now yeah. that I wasn't going to do any of the things I originally thought I was going to do, like become a doctor yeah, um, or even for that matter, finish my degree, which I did eventually end up doing. Yeah. That's I great. ended up taking a year off, which I managed to do and somehow got back into school elsewhere as a transfer. Mm. And, uh, oh, actually, so Thompson Rivers University, not to call out my alma mater, <laughs> they weren't supposed to accept me. Um, oh, really? But... Because they had recently changed their name from University College of the Caribou in an effort to be swankier, they had originally, they changed their name to their open learning name and UBC not really caring about (laughs) the rest of the world changing. I mean, sorry, UBC, but also. It's um, it's for real. (laughs) TRU probably, they, they, they must have known. Yeah. But when I was like, I need to send my transcript to Thompson Rivers University, they didn't have the University College of the Caribou updated to TRU. So they were sending all of my transcripts to open learning. So TRU, the actual institution admitting me, only had my high school transcripts to go off of. And they were like 94s and like, I was clear like a fucking rock star yeah. of the nerd world in <laughs> high school. <laughs> had, to, had to throw that in there, but yeah. I was a rock star of the nerd world in high school. And so they admitted me based on my high school transcripts because we were getting close to the start of the term. And I was like, they didn't have anything. And I was like, like, like I've sent you transcripts. I will send you an informal one personally, but you don't accept that. It must come from the registrar of UBC. It must be sealed. It must be mailed by them to you directly. Fine. But I've I've paid them like four times. I don't know what else to do. I'm at my wits end. I don't know how to get admitted. And she was like, you know, I'll just do you a huge solid. Your transcripts look so amazing. Mm-hmm. Like all of your volunteer experience, like everything looks really good for your application. The only thing we don't have is your university transcript. So I'll tell you what, I'll just admit you. And then like, and here I am talking about it years later. And she's like, and we just won't, you know, talk about it. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then I was like, and then she asked me the question after she's like, there you go, you're admitted. By the way, you weren't required to withdraw from UBC, were you? And I was like, oh, I, I definitely was. And she's like, oh, I was not supposed to just admit you. <laughs> You were supposed to have to go to a like a college. Oh. You weren't allowed admission back into a university directly. What? Yeah. That's how bad it was when I was suicidal, which, you know, makes sense. Like oh people God. have reasons they behave the way they behave. Like yeah. we have such a judgmental culture of being like these people are stupid or these people are smart. And it's yeah. just it isn't like that. No. At all. No. 
there are definitely going to be people with different levels of desire to to move through academic material yeah or with different levels of interest or with different levels of cognitive ability sure yeah but that doesn't make people stupid and it doesn't mean that they can't be extremely functional high-paid members of society as we know from so many high-paid business owners that are not the school type and yet we still refer to people like that who aren't highly monetarily successful as stupid and it's just like i hate the judgment yeah anyways we've digressed (laughs) (laughs) if it's not evident to everyone listening but yes (laughs) we were also talking about intense shit so yeah yeah so yeah i went through that essentially and uh that was part of that was part of me getting better was going back to school yep same yeah yeah it really like it it i always tell people like i i quit i quit acting professionally because i did not like the industry um my personal experience was it was it was very toxic yeah um and i just didn't like it Mm-hmm. Um, and also being rejected for literally six years will just drive your self-esteem straight into the ground. Oh, totally. I don't, I don't know how people are so functional or narcissistic or whatever that they manage to survive having to look for work like that. And I've seen how people, how casting agents cast people. And it is some of the comments border. They're cruel. Yeah. It's like too fat to this, to that. Not enough that like, it's just value judgments wow but that's i mean they're but they're not looking they're not looking at your character they're looking at are you going to you know it's so it's interesting because um one of my friends is a director Mm -hmm. and he says what he really hates are scripts where characters are introduced with a physical description i hate that he's like you're writing a fucking script yeah don't tell me what a person should look like tell me what their character is yeah it's it's my decision to decide what yeah. they're going to look like. Yeah. So he's like, it's it's my creative product. Mm-hmm. Why are you as a writer telling me what people should look like? Yeah. It also fucks people who are actors because everyone will tell you it's totally fine to cast someone white, for example, mm-hmm. if the character calls for someone who's not white. But they would never almost... This is this is at least how it used to be, and hopefully it's not how it is anymore, but I strongly yeah. think it is. Mm, probably. Um, but if they write a character as white, they're like, oh, we couldn't cast a person of color. Of this course, is a white yeah. character. So it's so interesting how people don't understand why there's such a public outcry over someone like Scarlett Johansson playing a Japanese woman um, when that could have gone to a Japanese-American yeah. actress. And why there not? are many. And a lot of people will then say, oh, but there are no brand name level ones. And it was a money decision. And it's like... Then make one. That's, like, you that's know what, exactly like, it. Put it's someone like, up to that level. You, you know what I mean? Yes. If you don't have all of the, the lower level individuals casting lower level positions and parts mm-hmm. for POCs, you never generate no. high end stars. It's literally a triple up, a trickle up situation. Yeah. And if people don't see an issue with the small stuff, they then throw up their hands at the big problems and go, oh, but there's no way to fix this. And yeah. it's like, but we're pointing to the solution. Yeah, like, there absolutely are ways to fix it. Absolutely. You're just not doing it. Absolutely. Because it, it's too much work. Yeah, and people just don't want to. Yeah, yeah. It's like... Nobody it wants to dip their toes into that because they're so afraid of disrupting this white... And I think there's also... This white industry. Like, yes. film is... It's, it's white. So interestingly, I've heard in theater that's changing quite a bit in Vancouver. I've heard I haven't heard that actually. Oh, I've I've been sure. really disconnected from the theater community though. Um, so. This is just coming from a, a POC that oh, that's that great. I know that is doing theater acting in Vancouver. That's um, awesome. And and she actually changed her last like so. In certain cultures, you have two last names, mm. and 
one of her last names is more Filipina and right. one of her last names is more white. Right. Because this is a mixed race individual. And she has definitely started using her Filipina last name. That's great. In her, on her, in her acting resume because yeah. there is much more attention being paid in Vancouver specifically to that, um, to essentially ensuring your whole cast isn't white. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's just like, it's a question of like, what percentage of the population is, is white mm-hmm. and what percentage of your workforce or culture or hobby group is white and mm-hmm. why? Yeah. These are just questions. Yeah. It's not meant to be a personal attack on people or to no. say your community is necessarily more racist than any other part of society. It's mm-hmm. just to say like, hey, it's worth taking a look at these questions and yep. seeing how you stack up. Like in BDSM, we look at Vancouver as 50-50 for people of color and white folks. Right. But the community is like 90, it used to be 95% white middle class, or mm-hmm. at least 95% white with a bit of a class separation. Yeah. Because there definitely are working class folks that are there as well, yeah. but like fewer of them and it's harder to access the community. Right. For obvious reasons, like events cost money. Yeah. Although it should be said that Metro Vancouver Kink is a sliding scale event. That's so great. we never turn someone away for their inability to pay. So if oh. someone's like, I don't have tons of cash, can I still get in? We'll mm-hmm. be like, absolutely. Yeah. However, it's not super well advertised, and that's something I would like to change. I would like yeah. it to be better advertised because I think there may be a fear there that if we advertise that any amount of money will get you in, more mm-hmm. people will request paying less. But I think if that person's like a lawyer or a doctor or someone who has the money, they're not going to do that. No. Because there's a degree of humiliation involved in requesting a sliding scale. Yeah. I feel pretty strongly about that. that there's yeah. a degree of humiliation involved, and I don't think that occurs to a lot of middle-class folks. They just go, oh, we have sliding scale at our event. We're doing enough. Or, yeah. or we've solved this problem or we've addressed this issue. And it's like, mm, not convinced. Yeah. Wow. Yes. But sorry, we were talking about <laughs> something radically different. <laughs> I'm really good at, at, at getting horrifically, train wreckedly <laughs> off, off topic. Um, we were talking about intimacy in one's relationship with oneself. And yes. then I got sidetracked and we started talking about um, coping and just different coping strategies. And we got on eating disorders because mm-hmm. we were talking about addiction in a, yeah. in a very real way. Yeah. Eating disorders can be an addiction. Yeah. There's certainly in, in my experience, personally a compulsive element, which is totally yeah. super like confusing to me because like I've experienced compulsion with regards to gaming, especially when I was younger. Mm. Like I went through a phase where I was gaming about eight to 12 hours a day. Wow. And like, I think my parents just given up on trying to intervene. Yeah. But again, talking about punitive models, like my mom was not just like, it wasn't like anger or discipline or violence mm-hmm. came out on like a zero to 10 scale. It was like a th- like at about a three or at like an 11. Oh. You know, it was like, there was always some like low level of like um, her muttering to herself about how useless her kids were oh, or God. like how worthless we were or how messy we were, how we made her life so much harder. So really, I shouldn't say three. I should say like six, probably. I was like, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah, it's pretty pretty aggressive, (laughs) but she wasn't being physically violent. So I didn't consider it. This is so funny how we all develop our own relative scales. Yeah. It's like, if she isn't directly stopping me from doing what I wanted to do or physically like hitting me or something, which to be honest, wasn't very common. Mm -hmm. The threat of violence was much scarier for me than violence itself, especially as a kid. Yeah, that was, yeah, As I had adult, the same experience like, with my dad. Please tell my, me more. My biological dad, yeah. It was it was seeing him hit, put a hole in the wall. Yeah, it's fucking terrifying. thinking, that could be me. Yeah. And that was so terrifying to deal with. Yeah. 
because then it's like, how do I get away from this person? Right. How do I make myself safe? And then living with the low level anxiety that I never feel safe. Yeah. I'm six years old and and trapped. Yeah. You know, like that's. Yeah, totally. And being in, being in relationships, I uh, got out of a relationship. I want to say 2014, January, 2014 with someone who was uh, not violent towards me, but definitely violent. Ouch. Yeah. And definitely aggressive. Um, oh, yeah. in, in the way that he spoke to me. Um, and, and it, it's f- so fucking triggering. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's so actively upsetting in the way that like, I think a lot of people who haven't been in abusive situations think only quote unquote real violence yeah. is. It's like, there's this understanding that if someone's not physically attacking you, quote unquote, how bad can it be? Yeah. Like there's that kind of shitty attitude out there. Well, and that's and what people, that people are like, oh, well you know, he never hit you. So was it really that bad? Yes. And I like, and I told him, I, I have this visceral memory of sitting on his floor, knowing that this was kind of the end of everything. Oh. And he was doing something on his computer and he brought his fist down so hard on his desk that I heard it crack. And I remember thinking, I have to get out of this situation now because that is going to be my face like literally i am going to die like that intense sense of immortality even though his mom was upstairs oh but that doesn't matter like the things that can happen before someone gets there this incredible sense of fear oh definitely um and this was like the day like the day before he had gotten blackout drunk and like threatened me right in in his living room and i'm trapped at his house so i took the bus went to my parents place and just said my my dad said do you really want to do this for the rest of your life Right. And I went, oh, I have an option. I have, I have an out. Yeah. So I call, I, I broke up with him over the phone because there was no way I was going to do it in person. Yeah. Fuck that noise. Yeah. No. And and he cried and it was upsetting. But when I ended the call, it was just like this incredible weight lifted off of me. Yeah. I hear you. And it was just like, I'm sad, but I'm out. Yeah. I don't have to deal with this person anymore. Yeah. Because he was just, he was becoming such a burden. Yeah. So, I get it. And I don't know if I was becoming that for him, but probably. Interesting. Just looking at it as an addi- as a former addict or yeah. a recovering addict. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you define yourself in terms of identity around addiction? Um I say I say recovering. Okay. I think I think recovery is a constant process. Sure. Um I know that a lot of people um that I know who are recovering addicts do view themselves as constantly in recovery. Right. And you are constantly working at it. Um I haven't I haven't used the drugs that I was addicted to since I was 23. Wow. So. That is a long time to yeah. be sober. Yeah. Not that there is such a thing. Like, no, I don't I mean, mean to say that no, it's I mean been like too long. I, I just mean. I drink. Yeah. You know, I drink and, um, but it's not. But it's like recreational, I take it. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, super serious, so. Yeah, suffice it to say your drinking was functional. Yeah. And if it's not hurting you or harming you and it's functional, yeah. it's not a problem anymore. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that is the goal of recovery for it not to be a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on what your goals are, because I'm yeah. sure for some people it is abstinence and like all the power to them. That's fine. But I don't think it has to be abstinence. Yeah. And you're not the first addict that I've heard say it doesn't have to be abstinence, but also like don't tell the folks in Alcoholics Anonymous because like they will get really upset about that. Yeah. 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 That abstinence model is something that I... Um, I mean, if it, yeah, like you said, if it works for some people, sure. but I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And alcohol was never really my, my issue. Right. 
mine was mine was like painkillers right so it was it was a different a different animal right so yeah yeah and in a sense you've adopted an abstinence policy for that yeah oh absolutely like i would never i i remember i got my wisdom teeth pulled and i had to be on percocets oh no and i remember the doctor writing the prescription handing it to me and me thinking how and there, I had so much anxiety about how I was going to moderate it. Oh. And I was in the car with my mom and she was like, oh, well, we'll go get your prescription. But she doesn't know. Oh, no. And so it's just, it was just me sitting in there and just being like, oh, fuck. <sighs> what am I going to do? Yeah. Like how. The whole way to the pharmacy, just dreading. Yeah. And then when I had them in my hand, just feeling sick. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I, I, I didn't even take the whole bottle because I was just absolutely terrified. I just yeah. started using Advil and Tylenol instead. Yeah, um, sure. And did that work for you? Yeah, you it was fine. Like, what the fuck? Like, why did there yep. need to be? And then I just and then I just went back to the pharmacy and said, you know, can you just dispose of these? Because I don't need them anymore. Thank God, like, yeah. that there was that. Well, yeah. or thank pharmacists. Yeah. <laughs> they just, like, took your prescription and were like, sure, we yeah. can the responsibly. Best. Yeah, because yeah. I was like, well, what am I going to do? Flush them down the toilet? Yeah. You know, there's, I don't want to do that. So. It just felt too cliche. Yeah. You're, <laughs> it like, was a little you're like, this This makes me as sick as getting... <laughs> I, I remember having this back. thought of like, I should just do it. And I was in the bathroom and then I'm like, well, what about the fish? And I just, it was just this really... <laughs> that is solid <laughs> reasoning. What about the fish? This ridiculous thought of like, those poor fish are going to get so high. I'm going to take, all this take this to the pharmacy and just be responsible. <laughs> That is an in, that is a really intensely impressive amount of self-control, of concern for yeah. apparently even the smallest fish. Very thoughtful. Well, it's I, I was I was five years removed from that addictive mindset, and I had been right. through like cognitive behavioral therapy and um, mm. things like that. So it was it wasn't as bad dealing with it as I thought it was going to be. There was a lot of anxiety, sure. Well, just fear of what might potentially happen. Yeah. But it sounds like you were re- very much in control the whole time. Yeah. And it was, it was intense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have made you confront a lot of stuff. Oh, I was having like almost like flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, yeah. Intense. Like yeah. you said. And every time I had to take one, just like anxious oh, and just that, waiting. And that feeling of like, is this it? And then when it started to kick in, just going, oh no. And trying to just. And I would just be super anxious, and then I'd be oh. sleepy, and then anxious and then tired, and it was just this horrible. Whenever you weren't like essentially hit by the perks, you'd yeah. just be like anxious as fuck about like what am I gonna do? If yeah. And I, I was taking half a tablet. You know, like it was nothing compared to what I was taking. Of before. course. So, but th- yeah, when I decided, you know what, I'm just gonna take Advil and Tylenol. It's fine. But like the alternative to that is having that conversation with your healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. And if you think your healthcare provider is going to be stigmatizing as fuck, then you're not going to have that conversation. Yep. Yep. Well, and you know, and if I, if I ever ended up in the hospital and I had like that record on my medical history, would they give me in future if you needed? Yeah. Painkillers. Right. You know, the answer might be no. I don't know how. And, like, maybe you wouldn't want those painkillers, yeah. but maybe you would. And ultimately, I think that should be your choice. Yeah, totally. Even if you may be making the wrong choice five years from now. Yeah. Like, I think it should be your ability to make that wrong choice, quote unquote, you mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. Like, we just have to give people their agency and autonomy to yes. function in society and treat them like adults, even when they're making bad choices. Because a lot of adults make very bad choices. Yep. 
Every day. And we let them get away with it if they're wealthy enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every day. I just, I, I can't help but think of like the whole Enron fiasco in the US. Oh, God. Where like so much suffering happened around the greed of like a small number of individuals mm-hmm. who committed like essentially some of the most heinous crimes. Yeah. Of juggling assets in an effort to unload pension burdens and all that jazz. Yeah. To purchase like, yeah, anyways. Yeah. But TLDR, some people really get away with murder and violence. Totally. Yep. And then other people d- can't even get away with being trusted not to be murderers yeah. or being violent, you know, based on stuff as stupid as like what race they're socially yeah. assigned. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you prefer, for those of you who are not on board with that language, the melanin in their skin. Mm. Yep. Yep. Well, we've managed to tackle <laughs> a few really intense topics. Yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you for like continuing to hold this space with me oh. and having this conversation because I think it's really important to have I, this conversation. Yeah, I do too. And I, I don't talk about this stuff a whole lot. Not because it's uncomfortable, but just because I don't really get the opportunity and a lot of the time I feel like in academia especially opening up about this kind of stuff especially in your past Mm -hmm. I always have this thought of especially especially being a woman in academia yeah does this make me and my research less credible oh fuck I certainly hope not and I would I would hope not either but like right yeah I just right but now you're now you're associated with this population yes that people in crime management corrections whatever you want to call it yes um are deeply opposed to yeah because that's how they've been educated and conditioned yeah and thankfully a lot of my professors at Kwantlen are very very liberal um you've also been sober a very long time yeah yeah and I'm very far removed from it and a lot of them they're very understanding um and they work with these communities and they well, yeah, n- work with these communities and really see that these are just people. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's really the, the core the core thing of it. And you would think that someone who had experience being an addict would be more of an expert on the topic, not less. Totally. And I think there there's really a space for that kind of peer-to-peer model, um, especially for research, especially with marginalized populations. I think that's really important. Yeah, which is where we come into the idea of snowball sampling. <laughs> We had a conversation <laughs> earlier about how Harlan Pruden, um, the lovely two-spirited human who sat on the presidential advisory committee around HIV AIDS in the United States for, I think, Barack Obama, um, now lives in Vancouver and was doing work at the BCCDC on either a doctorate or a postdoctorate. I'm not quite sure. But one of their projects um, that they were working on was doing a grand rounds talk at the BC Center for Disease Control. And one of their slides had all of these terms defined from BDSM. And of course, up there is snowballing, um, which isn't specifically from BDSM. And correct me if I'm wrong, Yana, but this is when a, 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 a male, a person assigned male at birth ejaculates into someone's mouth. Yeah. And then they spit all of that person's fluids back into... It's a return to sender move, That is what I've read on Wikipedia that it is. <laughs> That was the best. I can neither confirm nor deny my participation in any such that was activity. That's the best. I plead the fifth. That's great. I love it. It's fantastic. Anyways, so I've personally never done it, but sure. heard a lot of jokes about it. Got you. So, Got you. Yeah. Understand. Understand. You never inhaled. I. 
<laughs> so, so Harlan was talking about snowball sampling, and I was like, which is very different. Which is very different. <laughs> which is not the same. Not the same. And I very much had to ask, like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? And he was like, instead of like randomized sampling, where you sample like scatter shot through like a whole bunch of you know, you're not just like sampling people randomly, you're yeah. snowball sampling, yeah. which is to ask a small number of people, all of the people that they could refer to the study. Yes. So in essence, you're trying to make it build momentum and participants like a snowball. Yeah. As opposed to what I was thinking of, which was quite different. <laughs> um, so once he had, ex- once sorry, once they had explained it to me, I'm not sure if they use he, him pronouns or not. Mm. Um, but once Harlan had explained it to me, also, apologies, Harlan. I'm so very, very sorry. I don't know this, but I should know what pronouns he is. Um, they mentioned the word snowball sampling again. And like... It's all you can think of at this point. Snowballing in research. And I was just <laughs> like... I full on had to like turn away and smirk. And I was like, I just can't take you seriously <laughs> when you say snowballing like that. <laughs> so yes, that is me trying to be a professional. <laughs> That is what life like me with me looks like when I'm trying to be a professional. It's me looking at a highly like acclaimed, has this amazing career, is an amazing human, doing great work, trying to help raise awareness for stigma against kinksters in the medical system. And all I can say is I can't take you seriously when you say the word snowballing. I gotta tell you, every time I type that in my research now, I'm gonna start laughing. <laughs> That's great. Maybe I'll do a footnote. This is the joke. <laughs> this is the context. <laughs> right. You'll you'll have like footnote seven. And footnote seven. Like, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gone with by snowballing. I'm referring to the research methodology and not the popular definition. In like, here's the Wikipedia link. Here's the Wikipedia <laughs> link to what I don't mean. You're welcome. <laughs> Click at your own risk. <laughs> NSFW. <Yeah. laughs> Maybe put Google Safe Search on. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So that you just see a whole bunch of people throwing snowballs yes. as opposed to balls. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and and stuff. Awesome. Well, now that we've managed to bring cock and balls into. We de- into wow. these topics. That's I mean, that's I, just really, this is like... I didn't think that was going to happen. It's literally, it's a bucket list thing. Yeah. Like, that's pretty impressive. That's good. Yep. I'm proud of us right I'm now. very proud of us. I can't believe we did this. Uh, yes, there are definitely... Yes, I'm not even, not even going to go into the other <laughs> ways in which these topics could intersect. Oh, yeah. Because there's definitely some dark territory mm. we could go into, mm-hmm. for sure. Woof. Well, I definitely took that positive note and turned it on its head. (laughs) (laughs) So we were talking about the connection between intimacy, addiction, and connection itself Mm -hmm. with other humans and how important it is to have a good relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. I would be interested in talking more about what that positive relationship with the self looks like and how that plays a role in recovery. I think... I think it's hard to have good relationships with other people when you view yourself very negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that for me personally, um, getting out of that bad relationship that I was in, it didn't, I thought that it was going to leave me a very broken individual because my, one of my first breakups, I was just destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my gateway into to using. Wow. Um, 
not to which like, in a sense not to put anything no on that and not individual, to blame that individual but i'm noticing it's also very reminiscent of having your father leave mm-hmm. or having to break up with your father in yes a sense. and and um just to add to that i also have borderline personality disorder right. which is centered around a direct fear or indirect fear of abandonment i didn't know that at yeah. all that's totally new for me um so there there's a lot so did you say borderline or bipolar borderline and borderline. i have bipolar disorder oh so you have both BPDs. i have both of them that must be fun Woo! i call so it bpd squared i like it i like it <laughs> Honestly, I think I think more fun needs to be had totally around atypical quote unquote yeah. or neurodivergent states. Yeah. And know? when people are like, How can you make jokes about that? I'm like, I How else? How like, do I deal with it? Yeah. How do you even talk about it? Like if you can't make light of yeah. how dark reality can be sometimes, like you can't have like life just isn't fun anymore. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's already hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> just let me have this, you know. I know, right? Yeah, um, I, I don't. So I don't have borderline or bipolar. So mm-hmm. please feel free to call me out, even on the podcast, if I say something that's stigmatizing, because sure. it's never my intention. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have depression and anxiety, and those are definitely in the mix. <laughs> oh fuck them! Fuck them! They're so the hard. worst. Yeah, they are. Yeah, anxiety is the fucking worst. So I used to have. Remember how I was talking about how I had like this chronic, super intense depression? Yeah. Um, like. <laughs> One of my former partners mentioned to a mutual friend that I that I had just finished watching through Battlestar Galactica, the entire show start to finish for a second time, and the person literally said, "He struggles with depression, doesn't he?" That was her reaction oh my God. to hearing I had listened. I literally watched through all of Battlestar Galactica twice. Oh my god! Yeah, and I was like, not far from the mark, mm. because when I'm feeling horrifically depressed, some of the best content to consume is like, here's a character who is highly self-destructive. Yeah. Here's a character who gets it. Here's a character who's like suffering through hating who they are and like doesn't yeah. understand how they could ever be lovable because what they've done is so unforgivable. And I'm just like, oh yeah, like pour that depressing content mm-hmm. all over me right now yep. and light it on fire because yep. like. It's going to help me feel understood and I'll get to go to that really intense depressive place yes. and I'll sit there until I'm ready to come back to normal. Yes. It's almost like I feel the need to just exhaust all of those brain chemicals, just like spend them all now because yeah. I've clearly made enough of them. And when I have sufficiently tortured myself, I'll feel okay to come back to a place yeah. of being balanced yeah. and then I can be functional. Yeah. And that's how I used to deal with my depression because yeah. I would handle it in waves like that. That. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I did that a lot in in theater school. Yeah. Um, I really gravitated to parts where this Leroy character was just destroyed because it was such a a fantastic outlet Mm -hmm. for my my mental illness to come out Um, and for me to just work with it and just have this thing that was almost tangible because when you have a mental illness, there's there's nothing for you to kind of grab onto. Right it's not it's not there sitting right in front of you you can't pull it apart or punch it or whatever you want to do to it um just to to make it to help yourself work through it and for me having a script in my hand with a character who was so damaged and something that i could so relate to Mm -hmm. was this whole new level of of almost power over yes my illness sure where I could just say, yeah, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with this, and it's gonna get really messy, and then I'm gonna walk away. I'm gonna leave it all on stage. Yeah, I like that. And fuck you, like that was my, <laughs> that was the way I dealt with it. That's fantastic. And it really, it, like I always tell people, like 
again, I did not like the film industry. Acting saved my life. Wow. Legitimately saved my life. Um, and I absolutely believe that. Um, and it's something that I, that's why it informs my research so much is my, my theatrical background because um, if I can give that kind of power to people, especially women who are so marginalized in the prison system mm -hmm. and make a program for them where they can do that same thing with their mm -hmm. trauma and all their stuff that they're going through and just leave it on stage, that's, that would mean the world to me. That's fantastic. Yeah. And what a great way to bookend <coughs> the talk. I would love to invite you back on later to do another talk. Yeah. Um, to talk more about that in depth. Yeah, totally. But I think we've really excellently covered the intersection of addiction and intimacy and connection with other people. Yeah. And we've ta talked a lot about relationship with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's end the session there and then I'll have Perfect. you back on to another one. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimateinteractions or directly on patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com, so what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.